Welcome to the fifth episode of the Game Podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Thompson. With me are Michael Majors and Andrew Brown. Between the three of us, we are two gold-level pros, one platinum pro, and we are basically the spikiest magic podcast around. And right now, we're going to get into some super awesome spiky topics. But first, there was some magic to be played last weekend. Uh, I went to SCG Orlando, finished in the top eight playing green-white tokens. No one gives a crap about green-white tokens. That's pretty much what I've learned <laughs> over the last couple weeks. It's just, it, it, it's there. It is what it is. Uh, I keep winning with it. I'm going to keep playing it. That was my tournament, basically. Uh, Michael, what did you do? Well, uh, Andrew participated in a magic tournament this weekend, so I uh, bowed out. Did not fly to Orlando. Uh, WMCQ ended up being a little more costly than I wanted to get into, so I skipped that as well, but I'll be playing Magic for about the next two months. So Hell yeah. All right, nice. Andrew, tell, tell me about this WMCQ. Uh, yeah, so we drove up on Friday, showed up, played in the tournament, went 6-3. and three. Thought my deck was all right, uh, made a mistake, got lucky, you know, Magic. But it was good to get back in there. So who is we in this context? Like, I know there are a bunch of East-West Bowl people in attendance and stuff, so I'm just kind of curious, like, who you're... Who you're rolling with? Just a couple of local SoCal guys. The top eight was actually pretty stacked. There was uh, like four random dudes, three East West Bowl people, and one Owen Turtonwald. Who won the tournament. Yeah. So all the good guys won in, this, in the quarterfinals. And then it was three East West Bowl versus one Owen Turtonwald and... One own turn one one. It was. Uh... <laughs> I think Owen might have more pro points this season than like your entire team. I, I think it's close. Seth is on our team. Well, sure. Outside of Seth, then. <laughs> I don't know. Like uh, we have a bunch of gold people, so that's, I'm, that's already ninety. I'm being hyperbolic, man. Your team is good. I'm not saying your team sucks. I'm just saying that Owen has just like enough pro points to make two platinums, basically. Your team sucks and your deck is bad. Get out of here. He's <laughs> it's, it's saying three on one's a fair fight. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. You know, and and Owen won still playing a little white black deck, which I think is not a great deck. But were you the only one playing this deck? So uh, also just like tell me a little bit about your deck, I guess, because we're going to post the list in the show notes and stuff. But just so people have like a little bit of context for what's going on. Okay, so if you remember from Grand Prix in New York City, Jacob Wilson played a kind of a blue-white ramp deck. That's how I like classify it. It's like uh, Night of the White Orchid, Eldrazi Sky Spawner, and you're trying to get up to Ojutai and Avacyn. And you also have the wombo combo of always watching Ojutai. And you just have a bunch of like good white cards like Gideon, Thraben Inspector, and Declaration in Stone. It's just some like middling stuff that allow you to ramp to Ojutai, and then you just play some good cards with it. And sometimes it wins, sometimes it loses. Word. So blue-white mid-range or white-blue mid-range, I guess. Yeah, something like that. Okay. And were you the only one playing this deck, or did any of your teammates play this too? Uh, no, I was the only one playing it. I uh, played it a bunch online and kind of like tuned it to beat green-white while still having some game against other stuff. Yeah, it worked out pretty well. If I had made a mistake, I would have gone 7-2, which doesn't really mean much. But overall, I'm pretty happy with how it played out and my performance. Okay, so the statement I love is you played like a very normal deck, but tried to tune it to be good against green-white. And we're going to come back to that, I swear. And if I forget, someone remind me. One of the things I want to talk about with like you choosing to pick up and play this deck, a white-blue deck, and the last two opens, like a white-blue Rattle Chains deck has made the top eight. And these decks are, you know, both 
a little bit different. Uh, there was Hugo Terra's deck that was kind of like Saito's blue-red deck, had all the Dimensional Infiltrators, Rattle Chains, Stratus Dancers, like basically all the Welkin turns that you could fit into a deck. Last weekend, Brennan DeCandio top aided with kind of a similar deck, uh, except he also had like a, a more normalized deck like, kind of similar to yours, where he had Archangel Avacyn, Gideon, like, all these cards. And then yours, I think, is, like, the most normal. But I feel like blue-white rattle chains is something that people are picking up and working on as just kind of, like, this metagame hard read against green-white tokens. You guys know what a hard read is? Are you familiar with this? Uh, give, give the audience uh, some context. No, I'm, I'm just curious, like, whether, whether you guys know. You can say yes, and then I'll still explain it. From what I know, a hard read is when someone believes that they know exactly what is going to happen at the next tournament and are so dead set on doing something pretty off the beaten path that they do that. And either it's successful sometimes, but normally unsuccessful most of the time. Okay, majors? Yes. So like my impression of it, I, I'm pretty sure it's a poker term. So a, a soft read would be like, I'm going to hedge my bets against this possibility because I believe it to give me the best EV while also taking into consideration other outcomes. And a hard read is kind of just like, I know this is going to happen, so I'm making the best play against this outcome. Yeah, and, and you you basically ignore all the other outcomes because you are so confident that it is going to be this one thing and only this one thing. And I think like hard and soft reads are discussed in other places, but where I first heard about it was from Smash, actually. I don't know, like, I, I read about the concept and I was like, yeah, dude, this is, this is like, so applicable to magic. It is ridiculous that, like, no one has ever really brought this up. But it, it is basically just, like, Smash involves, like, a lot of movement and stuff, and you, you never really know, like, what they're gonna do, and sometimes you try to do the thing where you, like, hedge against a few different moves that they could do, right? And then the, the hard read is where you're just like, I know that at this moment they're gonna do this one thing, so I'm gonna do this thing that just maximally punishes them for doing it, and then I get maximally punished if they do anything else. But I feel like you sign up for a standard tournament, you register rattle chains, like, that is a hard read. Because, like, these decks are not crushing standard, and they're certainly not crushing standard when the format is more wide open. And if you look at, like, the day two breakdowns from the last couple opens, like, green-white tokens was pretty huge. And I know specifically from Orlando, like... It was 30 of the, the day two metagame. I think day two is like 120 or something like that. So yeah, it, it is it is kind of a hard read. But at that time, like if you're making this hard read, you you need to know that like everyone is going to be on green white tokens, but that's still just not the case. You know, it's still, you know, 20, 30%, whatever. I, I kind of have issue with just playing a, a kind of low power deck that is just trying to hate on the best deck just because... There are other decks in the format. It's not like the format is ever going to be like 80, 90% green-white. And also at the same time, like you, you might be a favorite against them. You might be 70% or something, but you're not 100%. I, I mean, I, I definitely think that hard reads just don't have much of a place in Magic for the most part. I mean, there are corner cases where it should exist. You can't really ignore the human aspect. Like in Smash, there's like one move at one time, but over a course of a Magic tournament, there's like nine rounds, 10 rounds, 15 rounds, uh, you can't really like hedge on the same move every single time. Again, there are corner cases and there's the human element of, you know, this guy just only has not green white cards. So he's not going to play green white. He's not going to invest that money. But so there are too many factors for a hard read to truly be like always needed. So where I learned this lesson was actually with uh, Modern before Eldrazi got banned right after the Pro Tour, Pro Tour through the Gatewatch. 
I was playing a open in Louisville, I believe, where I decided to register Merfolk because I thought it would beat up on Eldrazi. And I believe I went 3-0 against Eldrazi and beat the mirror match, but got absolutely destroyed by every other deck. I, I love it. I love it when, you know, people kind of get punished. Uh, <laughs> like, I, I don't know if you remember this, Majors. I'm sure you do. But, like, I, I, I almost certainly gave you a hard time that weekend. Yeah, sure. And I deserve it. That's fine. But, like, the fact that I had that experience was great. Yeah, I mean, you, you grow from that. You learn from that. And that's kind of what this is all about. Right. If I just had, like, a middling finish, like, if I had, like, export or whatever and, like, cashed and, like, did fine, like, maybe I would have made that mistake again. But, like, I just learned the lesson and it was done. So for these last couple opens, we have Hugo Terra finishing in sixth. And then last weekend, Brendan DeCandio finished fourth. He actually knocked me out of the tournament. Brennan's deck is taking it a step in the right direction where he's not all in on a bunch of Welkin turns and like invocation of St. Traffs and stuff like that. Like he has more real cards. Like he has a lot more power to his deck. And I feel like that's the main issue with playing these metagame decks is that you just end up playing a bunch of cards that are well-positioned but are not very powerful in a vacuum. So, I don't know. Orlando was kind of weird because there was, like, you know, Naya that made the finals. There were a lot of white-blue humans decks. There was, like, a, a Jun deck that was live going into, like, round 13 or whatever. He was live for top eight. There was Ben S with, like, his green-black, you know, the rock deck, basically. Like, there, there were still just a lot of weird decks out there. And I don't know. I kind of feel like a lot of those people were doing the thing that Andrew was talking about where it's, like, you play mostly a real deck except you... You know, maybe you're playing an extra color in your green-black deck or your, your green-white deck to try and fight these green-white decks, but, like, you're still mostly a real deck. We actually built some blue-white decks similar to this at the very beginning of Shadows of Vernistrad Standard, and, you know, you can do some cool things, like generate a bunch of clues of Bygone Bishop and Thraven Inspector, and you have some powerful cards like Neither Whatever Could and Archangel Apps and Gideon, but, like, the decks were just on generally more powerful than this, and so, like, we eventually got rid of this deck, even though, I guess, incidentally, it would have been good against green-white tokens. Remember at the beginning of testing, we also had that blue-white Thunderclap Wyvern deck with, like, that was playing the full Rattle Change, Dimensional Infiltrator, Hangerback, and Silumgar Sorcerer. Just a lot of bad cards with Archangel Abyssin, and uh, we realized that, you know, these cards weren't powerful enough to just beat, like, a Gideon, so we just kind of scrapped it. Which is weird, because it's like, you have a lot of evasion and stuff, too, right? Yeah, but just, like, dealing like dealing with a stuck threat when you only have, like, four declarations as your removal spells. And Gideon is just such a fast clock. It's, like, seven damage. It's just so much. Plus, they play other spells, like removal spells. Like, Gideon plus removal is, like, just a really good strategy in general. Well, do we actually want to talk about, like, what the perception is of, as to why this, these blue-white shells, like, beat up on green-white tokens? Like, just the ev evasion aspect? Yeah, that was the next thing I was going to get okay. into. Basically... When Atlanta was happening, we're seeing Hugo in the feature match area. We're seeing some of the cards that he plays, but like obviously we don't have his complete deck list yet. And it's like he's in the same bracket as us, so we're just like, oh, you know, like what what sort of thing is is this guy gonna have? Basically, like we don't know where his deck came from. For all we know, he just built it himself, and then we have no idea what cards are in it. But it's just like, okay, I would expect like this deck to have Ojutai's command, to have Archangel Avacyn at least like as a two of, you know. Uh, just because he is basically on this flash plan. He has Bell Shrivel and Clash of Wills and stuff, and it seems like those cards just like fit into his game plan really well. But then it's like you see things like Invocation of St. Traft in, in his game one, and it's just like, okay, you know, he's clearly got some weird stuff in there. But I, I think a lot of it is just like you don't know exactly what's in their deck and, and how to handle them. And Hugo did not have Avacyn. He did not have Ojutai's Command anywhere in his 75. And... 
I don't know. It, it's one of those things where it's just like, I would definitely play around those cards if I just played against him in the Swiss, you know, based on the cards that I've seen already. And maybe he was able to use that, you know? And then, like, he played against Tom Ross in top eight of the Open and just got smashed. But, like, Tom's deck was not very popular at that point. So I sit down to play against Brennan in top eight, and I had heard kind of, like, these conflicting things. Like, I heard that he was on, basically, Hugo Terra's deck. And then uh, Charles Gindy was like, no, I, I swear to God, I saw him with, like, three-bit Inspector, Knight of the White Orchid. I thought he was just playing humans. And then I look at his deck, and he's just got a mishmash of all those cards. I just started laughing. Yeah, his deck, like I said, is is more powerful, has Avacyn Gideon, uh, Ojitai's Command, like the things that you would pretty much expect out of this deck. But like from, from looking at it, now that I knew his deck list, like I knew what I had to play around and I knew how I had to configure my deck specifically in the post-board situations in order to like basically not walk into the traps. Like I know that he was like 12-0 against green-white tokens, uh, leading up to the, the open, and maybe that was like counting some of the matches in the open too. Basically, like I did not want planar outbursts against his deck. You know, he has Ojitai's command, secure the waste, Archangel Avacyn, Gideon. He has a lot of flash threats. He, he could also side in negate if he wanted to. I didn't want to raise my mana curve because I felt like if I'm just getting nickel and dimed out by a bunch of two one flyers, then you know I certainly don't want to have just a bunch of five drops in my hand and. It felt like I was going to lose to him if he was able to tempo me out, basically, and I just wanted to lower my curve, and I thought something like Lamhole Pacifist would just be very good against him, either as a blocker or something that is, like, good with command and good at pressuring him, you know? Like, it, it might be very easy for me to just turn the corner against him with just having a 4-4 because he can't block it effectively, and he doesn't have much removal in his deck and stuff. So I, I feel like one of the ways that these people get an edge is because... A, people are not familiar with what's in their deck, and B, even if they are, like, you see their deck list, but you don't necessarily know how to play against it. Like, you don't know how to, like, you haven't gotten the reps in, basically, and it's just like, okay, well, he's, like, got a bunch of little creatures. Obviously, I want these planar outbursts, but, like, he's used to playing against that stuff. Like, he has tuned his deck to be good against those plans, therefore, I cannot do that. This is a little bit of a segue, but I actually think this is a good time to bring up, like, people are a little too strict and are not, like, willing to be dynamic with their sideboarding. Like, they'll see, like you said, like, these small ball white creatures and be like, okay, well, obviously I'm supposed to bring in planner outbursts, I'm supposed to act like they're kind of like this human deck, but like you said, the fact that they're, like, kind of adjusted to combat those plans initially means that you need to adapt. Right, exactly. Uh, so I do feel like, yes, if you are Brendan DeCandio, who is very, very good at magic, and you are playing against people who don't know your deck and are playing green-white tokens and are just kind of, like, sideboarding on autopilot how they would normally sideboard against, like, a small white creature deck, then, yeah, your deck is built to exploit those people. What I'm worried about is, like, if I were to pick up this deck and play it in a Grand Prix or whatever, what happens when I get to the top tables? And it's like, you know, maybe people have scouted me or whatever, and they kind of have an idea of what's in my deck list, and they are smart, and they can evaluate things on the fly and kind of do what I did, where it's just like, you expect them to bring in planar outbursts, and you're stuck there, like, trying to play around it. Meanwhile, I'm just trying to beat you down. It's like, the person who has complete information is a huge favorite, as far as, like, you know what your game plan is, you know what their what they think their game plan is, and then you try and exploit that. But if you're trying to exploit a different game plan and your opponent's on a different plan, then it's just not going to work out. You know, you're going to end up like sideboarding in the wrong cards and stuff like that. Yeah, after playing with these decks like a lot and just like testing a, a bunch of different versions of it, the biggest weakness is that, again, your opponent knowing what you're up to and just the fact that you're very bad at coming from behind. And like when your opponent knows what they're doing and they just try and play a mid-range, mid-range game with you, their cards are just so much better than yours. And like 
you're drawing like Thraben Inspector, you're drawing Militia Captain, and they're drawing like Gideon and Dramoka's Command. It's like when you fight like punch for punch, you're going to lose these matchups. But when you have that edge of like my opponent doesn't know what's going on, you're definitely going to have a significant advantage. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. But I, at the same time, like I wasn't trying to fight him punch for punch necessarily. Like I didn't want all of my big cards just because I felt like if I play an Abstinent and get Stasis Snared or Ojitai's Commanded or whatever, like that could just be the game, you know, like that that is kind of game over. So uh, I had some of that stuff in my deck, certainly so that I could kind of beat him in a late game. And I thought that either way, Evolutionary Leap was still going to be good against him just because I could sack my hanger backs and make it so like I would have some 1-1 Thopters to block his 2-1 Flyers and I would have ways to not get tempoed out by Reflector Mage and have ways to like flip my Avacyn whenever I wanted to and stuff. Like, I, I still felt like some of that stuff was pretty important, and Linvala is is kind of just, like, the slam dunk card in the matchup, right? Uh, so I definitely wanted those. So at the same time, like, if I'm boarding in Linvala, I don't want a bunch of other fives. So he was very surprised at how I sideboarded. Unfortunately, like, games two and three did not go very well for me. Like, game two, I had a Knight of the White Orchid on the draw uh, with Canopy Vista Forest Oath of Nyssa in my opener and a bunch of cheap spells, so it was, like, pretty good. But then my third land drop was a forest, and I never hit a fourth land, so I was like, kind of mana screwed. And then game three, he mulled the five, but uh, I didn't have a second white, and he went like rattle chains, bishop, reflector mage, get a clue, and I was pretty far behind at that point. And then uh, he also like peeled a secure the waste, and at that point there was basically nothing I could have done. But that was like the turn where like I, I got my second white mana and had Linval and two Avacyns, like. I did not have many, like, double white cards in my hand, and he was just like, hi, you know, like, serves you right. Like, I bet you had a bunch of, like, planar outbursts in your hand and stuff. And it's like, dude, I didn't even bring that card in. I'm just curious, would you guys agree with the statement that decks like these are good at top-eating tournaments but not winning tournaments? Uh, I mean, I would definitely agree with that. Just for the same stuff I was talking about, like, the information war, I think, is pretty huge, and I think that is where he gets a pretty big edge. But unfortunately, I was not able to punish him. So I don't know. I think a lot of people are going to look at it and just be like, yep, Brendan obviously, like, beat the the green-white dude in the top eight, and then, you know, lost to whatever, Naya, I guess. But I don't know. I don't I don't think it's that cut and dry. I feel like if I could, like, pick and choose my matchup in the top eight, like, his his would be in, like, the top half. Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of agree with that statement, although it definitely, like, depends on the day, whatever's popular or, again, the soft read rather than the hard read. This is a good soft read deck, I think, so... Yeah, I, I do, too. I, I think yours is also very excellent for that, and it's, like, a little bit more in the soft read category because you have things like Ojitai always watching. Yeah, so for, for me, it's like I look at Brennan's deck and I'm like, what is the best thing that this deck can do? Play a couple humans, Reflector Major thing, and then play Gideon. I mean, that's that's definitely a good curve, don't get me wrong, but like, there's no like super ceiling draw that just feels unbeatable, whereas Andrew's deck can just play always watching into Ojitai, and many decks just can't beat that at all. Yeah, I agree. I, I feel like Brennan and Hugo are both kind of playing like this Delverish game plan, right? Where it's like, you pick up a lot of small edges because you're using your mana more efficiently than everyone else. And then eventually it just gets to a point where they're they're kind of in the chokehold. You know, you have like this tempo advantage and they have no real way to catch up. Their big cards might start coming online, like their Linvalas or Planar Outbursts or whatever way that they're trying to fight you. But then you just have like all these cheap cards to actually uh, make profitable exchanges with those big cards, like the Ojitai's Commands or whatever. What Andrew said is true. These decks have a very difficult time coming back from behind, you know, like... If your opponent's ahead and you draw, like, a rattle chains or whatever, like, that's not going to do anything for you. So these decks very much have to get out kind of on the front foot, maintain a small advantage, and just try and cement their advantage once they have it. I am personally being pretty negative about these decks, but I do feel like 
they are reasonable choices because green-white is a big portion of the metagame, and I'm not saying that these decks are like 0% against non-green-white decks, but because that's certainly not true. But I don't know. You know, like people can pick and choose whatever they want to do for Magic in, in whatever they way they want, and I think that's great. That's one of the good things about Magic, and I don't think that these decks are necessarily bad. I would just caution against bringing this to like a Grand Prix or a Pro Tour or something like that, or even like an Open where in the top eight, your opponent gets to see your deck list, you know, because that takes a lot of the edge off your deck. And like Michael said, it's just, it's really hard to win a tournament at that point, especially since like your opponents are way more competent. They might be like more clued in on how your deck operates. And even if they aren't, I never saw Brennan play a single game throughout the tournament, but I saw his deck list and I knew what my plan was, you know, and like, I feel like he just basically has no edge at that point. I don't know. I kind of disagree with that statement in terms of the Grand Prix. Because, I mean, at a Grand Prix, normally you're there to top eight and get pro points and qualify for the Pro Tour. So, like, if you take one of these decks that are good at top eighting or good at hiding information, then if that's your goal, just top eight, then I think this could be a fine choice. Like, I remember early on when I was playing Magic, um, I played in the, in the Esper Control Sphinx's Revelation day. I played just, you know, just like a stock list in the main board, but then my sideboard was like Pack Rat, Night Veil Spectre, Alms Beast, like all these really big creatures that would just prey on people who were so conditioned to like sideboard correctly or what they thought was correctly that, you know, I just play a 6-6 six, six and they're like, oh, how do I be that? So if you're trying to win the information war at a Grand Prix, I think that's a good idea. Well, I mean, I think it's a good idea up until you're like 11 and 2 and then you have like the two rounds left to go because it's like the, the format gets narrowed down pretty quickly and the people who are in top eight contention, it's pretty easy for them to scout out the other people who are in their bracket. I mean, certainly, you know, not everyone does that, but it also, like, if you have a weird deck, you know, like, if Rattle Chains is, like, 11 and 2 at a GP, like, people are going to talk about that, and, you know, they're, they're going to figure that out, so I don't know. I feel like it's still a liability. I also feel like if you're trying to top 8 the tournament, why, why shouldn't your goal be to win the tournament? And I, I do feel like this is kind of, like, a weird deck selection-y type thing that we could talk about, like, at length in a future show. But, like, what is the difference between, like, playing a deck that is really good at making top eight versus playing a deck that has a good shot to win the tournament? And how much does that differ? But a lot of people's goals are just to top eight the tournament and to qualify for whatever tournament that they want to qualify for. I, I get it, but is, like, is playing something like Brennan's deck or your deck a better, like, are you more favored to actually top eight the tournament than actually just playing something like Green White Tokens? Because, like, I don't even think that that's necessarily true. People have these arguments all the time where it's like, you know, what if you play a deck that has really polarizing matchups? Like, you have a lot of 70-30s. Is that better than playing a deck that just has, like, a bunch of 55-45s? And then they just, like, run the numbers or whatever. And it, and it basically just, like, always comes out to, like, you know, don't play, like, the high-variance deck. And if you're like, oh, well, I need to get, like, only a top eight matters for me in this tournament. So I need to get lucky. I need to play the high-variance deck. Like, a lot of people have disproved that already. I think, I think there's two sides of the coin here. I, I, I will say that, so this is like my philosophy for Pro Tours or whatever. I just want something that has a very high power level and is very proactive because the skill gap edge I have at the Pro Tour is minimal. So I just want to punish my opponents and just play the best cards I can. Yeah, I kind of agree with that. I'm more inclined to play higher variance decks against people who are at the same skill level or better than me, but I guess that applies more to limited than constructed for me at the Pro Tour. So yeah, I don't know. When, when you say like, oh, this deck is like good at making top eights, like how much better is it at making top eights than something like, you know, green white would be or an insert whatever deck you are used to playing? Well, there's also the argument of like, you know, maybe you don't have a ton of time to find out the nuances of beating the best people in the mirror matches. You know, that's a reasonable argument as well. 
I mean, are, are you coming from a place of like, you know, you're going in cold with all decks? Or is it like you've been playing this deck and know it really well? Because I think if you have to just like pick up this deck and learn all the matchups, I feel like in that amount of time, you could just like learn the mirror match. Sure. I, I mean, I don't think you're necessarily wrong, but different people want to do different things. Yeah. I mean, obviously there are a lot of, a lot of variables, a lot of factors, and I, I don't think it is as simple as just like, you know, running a bunch of math and, you know, oh, this deck is like more favored to make the top eight, therefore I'm going to play it. Because like, like Andrew said, there's the human element, right? Like you never know. There are so many variables and, you know, some dude could just be like, I don't know, crushing the tournament with like mono red or like maybe he has like a dude at his local store that plays rattle chains a lot. So he has like three aerial volleys in the sideboard. Like you never know. Anything could happen. But I, I definitely don't think that these decks are bad. Uh, if it were me, I would lean a little closer to what Brennan or Andrew are doing with their blue-white decks than what Hugo is doing, just because I think the power level is a little bit higher. Uh, so you don't have as much of that Delvery feel, but you know you do have some actual staying power against a deck like Naya or whatever that might have like Radiant Flames or Languish or something. So I definitely like those aspects. Yeah, but again, I want to reiterate that part of the human element is what makes magic so great. You can go to a tournament and play against a guy with three aerial volleys in a sideboard. So. Oh yeah, dude, absolutely. I'm not being like, oh, you know, that sucks. Like, I'm not mad at that guy. I think it is great because if, if there wasn't the human element, if if magic didn't have like all these different pieces or whatever, you know, like then we're, we're just talking about chess or whatever. And I feel like a lot of us probably find that kind of boring, you know, but magic is great for all those reasons. So, Andrew, any any final words on your deck? Anything you want to share with people? Uh, you mentioned, like, you know, your preparation process a little bit and uh, things you might change. Going forward, uh, we're going to post the deck list. Um, I'd probably sw- swap out Hanwar Militia Captain for uh, Anifenza Kintry Spirit. The reason is because, like, this deck plays a lot of twos, and you're very two-centric just because you have Knight of Light Orchid. Like, you want to either miss your land drop on the play, or you want to play it on the draw, so you have an ex- that extra two-mana slot on your turn three or your turn two, or your turn four. So, the reason the Militia Captain was there in the first place was to be a juicy target for Dramoka's Command, because you have Always Watching, they have Avacyn, and... Again, Dramokas command to kill your Ojutai, so you really want to have them blow that early so that you can uh, maximize your Ojutai always watching in the later game. In terms of the sideboard, I really didn't like Tragic Arrogance. I'd probably just go back to playing Planar Outburst. The Scatter to the Winds were excellent. Nobody really plays around that card anymore, and the Awaken was pretty relevant sometimes. Linval is just an all-star, and Gideon, another all-star. Funny story in the tournament, actually. Um... I had to play against Owen in round uh, four, and I beat him, but he then went on to beat literally everybody else he played. So there's Owen for you. I have a, I have a question about Scatter to the Winds. Sure. All right, so, so I guess this will be a two-part question. First part, was there any time where Scatter to the Winds, if it were not spell triple, excuse me, if it had been spell triple, would you have not been able to counter a key spell? That's what I'm trying to say here. In my limited experience of the tournament, No. Okay. I have enough blue sources, and Knight of the White Orchid is very good at finding Prairie Stream. So double blue is not usually a problem. No, he was asking, He was asking, could they pay four? Yes, yes. Oh, 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 could they pay four? Probably, I would say they couldn't pay it 80% of the time. Okay. Having Clash of Wills also makes them wary of, like, holding up mana, which could be relevant at some point. So I think I would rather still have Scattered the Winds. So, so the reason I bring this up is in passing, before GP New York... Andrew Cuneo came up to Brad and was talking about the Pro Tour, and he made some remark about Scatter Winds to the effect of, it's worse than Spell Shrivel because you might make the mistake of kicking it. 
It's just, like, Awakening a Land is just always a misplay, and you might trick yourself into making that play. I think that's true in, like, an actual control deck, but in Andrew's deck, like, he has enough threats that, you know, their, their removal's gonna get bled. Okay. Yeah, sure. I remember many times in uh, Pro Tour testing when we had Scatter instead of Spell Shrivel, like, our land would just get, like, Reflector Mage or, like, killed or something. Like, or whatever. Yeah. yeah. So, overall, I mean, deck was pretty nice. As it is called, blue white nice <laughs> sky spotter night into Odrutai into always watching. That's some powerful stuff. I mean, if you're into powerful stuff, I would recommend doing that. All right, you guys want to talk about new stuff, new cards? New stuff's exciting. Hit me. Okay, so first I want to frame this with the fact that as spoilers come out, I imagine we're going to be talking about them. And until I met Majors for lunch this morning, I just like completely forgot that that was like a thing that we could do. I don't know why, but it was like, oh, this Emrakul is pretty sweet. I wonder what we're going to talk about on the podcast today. You know? <laughs> like, <laughs> basically, I'm really dumb. Uh, so yeah, that's that's probably just going to be like a solid section. And maybe it'll go longer, maybe it'll be shorter. But the, the big thing that I want to talk about is how to evaluate cards as things come out. Because I see the same stuff happen a lot of times as, as new cards come out, and especially with this block, or, or just like the last couple blocks, like the Eldrazi, it's just like, these cards are weird. Therefore, they don't fit into an existing deck. Therefore, I'm pretty sure they suck. So you're, you're kind of missing out because inevitably there's something that you think sucks that doesn't suck. And I think that cards basically don't suck. I think there, there's context for everything and there are some scenarios in which a certain card would be good. And it kind of behooves the person to actually figure out what those scenarios are and find out ways to use the cards because not everything is going to fit into an existing deck. But like, you know, how, how do you guys approach this? Before I go on my methodology, I just want to like go back to that. It, I think it's pretty bad in Magic just to call stuff bad or good. Because, I mean, it's Magic. There's human element to everything. Nothing is truly like that black and white. With that in mind, whenever I look at cards, I try to think of the best case scenario and the worst case scenario and then go from there. So so for me, as, as far as like evaluating cards go, I think uh, the first place to start is can I make a direct comparison to another card or a similar effect you know that was tournament playable like jerry and andrew said it's important not to be black and white because formats are contextual and what is good in one format might not be good in another but still drawing a some kind of comparison is you know an important place to start especially when you're starting to like build decks for a new format you don't want to get overwhelmed so you might start with you know bits and pieces and i think the most important part is instead of writing off cards as good and bad or just trying to slot cards into specific archetypes that already exist just build decks and play with cards because even if you play with a deck that's clearly very bad you should be able to evaluate whether a card was good or not so i hate the comparison to older cards like i get that it gives you some sort of context but it's like also the context for that card and like how good it was how effective it was is different because it was in a different format, you know? It's like how people were like, oh, I'm going to port this standard deck to modern, but, like, that doesn't work because modern's a much different format than standard and vice versa, you know? So you're, like, comparing, I don't know, like, some five-mana Planeswalker to a five-mana Planeswalker that was good two years ago because they look kind of similar, and it was like, that one was pretty good, but it's like there was a reason why it was pretty good, and the, the cards are only as good as, like, what's happening around them, you know? It's just like... If Stoneforge Mystic and Batterskull are legal in a format, but the format is all turn one kills, like Stoneforge Mystic is not good, even though it's like widely accepted to be a busted magic card. And I think the same thing is true for these things. So I think it's like 
good for you to look at previous things that are similar to it to kind of like figure out like how it might work in game or whatever, but to just look at like direct comparisons and I, I see this happen all the time with Planeswalkers. I think it's just like the easiest one where, I don't know, it's just like, oh, like Ralzeric is like this four mana thing that like kind of protects itself by untapping creatures and like lightning bolt stuff. Like that's pretty good, right? That's like kind of similar to a Johnny Vegin or something. And it's just like, no, no, those things are just like way, way different. And they I, I basically feel like they're kind of a waste of time because any information that you might think you get from them just kind of ends up being false. So again, I agree with you, but I think it's important to look at why those cards might be a good place to start. And that's because they might compare favorably to something that is known to be good in the past. Okay, so if you're just looking at it from a starting point, I could see that. Just to like try and gauge like potential power level. But even like as sets come and go, there's like this whole power creep thing and yada 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 like i feel like the context changes too much and you just kind of have to figure it out basically by what you said it's just like building decks and playing games like it doesn't matter if your decks are good like you said just get in the reps play with the cards and then you know you're gonna be able to figure stuff out from there again to harp on my point previously it's you want to try to it's not as simple as this of course but you want to downsize the card pool a little bit yeah because you know if the new set is like 200 cards or whatever i don't even know how big it is they keep changing it but if it's like 200 cards, you can't test with every card. That's just going to take way too long. So, And it's not it's not good to immediately write off like rares and mythics specifically, but there are cards you can write off just by drawing comparisons. Like, yeah, like, this is cool, and it's like kind of powerful, but like, is it actually doing anything that's like special, or is it just like this card that I think might feel good to cast, and I might be able to kill my opponent with it one time, and I'm like, man, that was awesome, but like, is it always going to perform well? Probably not. Yeah, I, th I think the cards that get overlooked the most that are like, yeah, this is, like, kind of powerful, but it's not, like, overwhelmingly, like, in your face. Like, Tireless Tracker just yeah. being, like, a three-mana 3-2, three and it's like, where does this fit? Like, it seems kind of inefficient because you have to pay two mana to draw a card and all this stuff. And I feel like that was the card that it just took forever to show up. Yeah, I agree with that. I think uh, somebody somebody drew the comparison to it today. I think it was Ari in an article he said it. It's like a Planeswalker because it continues to grow and draw you cards, which I thought was pretty funny. Yeah, yeah, Tireless Checker is just the the best example of uh, under-evaluating a card in their recent history. Yeah, so you you look at the set, you're like, where does Tireless Tracker fit in? Do I want it in this deck? Like, there's not a Landfall deck or whatever. And it's just like, ah, we just won't play it anywhere because it doesn't really fit in. And then as the format goes on, it's like, well, now it's in our human deck. It's in our, our Bant Company deck. It's in our ramp decks. Like, if it's not in our main decks, it's, it might be in our sideboards. Like, the card is basically just everywhere it is good enough. And I think people just dismissed it. And also I, I own 30 tireless trackers, so please play them more. Yep. <laughs> how's uh, how's Bygone Bishop going for you, Michael? Shut up, Andrew. Hey, it, it, it just top aided. It just top aided. The, the spike it's is coming. incoming, don't worry. Uh, <laughs> so so yeah, this this is kind of how we evaluate cards. Basically don't don't dismiss anything uh, without trying it first. Like you, you might be missing something or maybe the format shifts in a certain way where like that certain effect is good or whatever. Like there are just so many variables. You never know what's going to happen. Uh, let's talk about Emrakul, I guess. Michael, go ahead. The thing that, that uh, Jerry and I were talking about over lunch specifically today was that like a lot of people seem pretty disappointed with Emrakul. And so my gut reaction to that is they probably haven't played Magic long enough to get Mindslavered. Because being Mindslavered is just one of the most unique and powerful effects in Magic. And until, like, it happens to you or you do it to someone and you see the devastating effects of having your turn stolen, you just don't really understand, like, how good that effect is. 
So this is a fixed mind slaver. They do get an extra and, turn. But I'm not convinced that. that's like but, actually enough to do anything. No, because there are mind slaver turns where you just leave them with nothing, and then it's like they they get one turn to like you know draw a card and play it. It's and it's not so like an example of a mind slaver turn is you might like cast all of your opponent's resources in their hand, killing their entire battlefield, and they're just left with literally nothing. Yeah. Or uh, the the thing. Okay. So can, can I? Are you done? Can I? Uh, mostly, I do want to touch on like how cool Emrakul is and, like, the Delirium thing, but I, I think you got it. And the, the art is gas. Okay, so first of all, this thing is going to cost nine, most likely. Instant Sorcerer Creature Land, I think, are kind of givens, and then if you have, like, a Hangerback Walker or, like, a Green Vessel, Oath of Nyssa, like, this thing could be cast on the cheap. You know, you're probably not going to cast it on turn seven or whatever, but it is going to be cheap, right? Majors was talking about how you can get it with Sanctum of Ugin, you can get it with Traverse the Uvenwald, you can cast it off Shrine. Like, there's a lot going on with this card to the point where it does not cost 13 mana. You know, that is just not going to happen. So what I do when I look at this thing, is just like, where where does this fit in? Where do I want this? And it's like, well, this is kind of like an Ugin type thing, you know? Like, on a good day, it's going to cost 8 mana. It's probably just going to, like, end the game on the spot, or at least, like, you know, you'll you'll kill them over the course of two turns after you just decimate everything that they have. Yeah, it's a, it's a fixed mind slaver, but whatever. You can also just, like, return this to your hand and cast it. I don't know if there's, like, a good Eternal Witness, I guess, Den Protector, you know, like, if they manage to kill this or whatever and just do it again. It's a reasonable target with Nahiri. Yeah. Yeah, sure. I mean, you, you hit him for 13, and then that either kills them, or you just cast it next turn. Yep, you slaver him. This is going to be in a decent amount of decks. Like, I want to build decks around this stuff. Like, Sultai midrange, uh, any ramp deck, any sort of blue control deck. Like, maybe there is a way to actually make a Delirium deck. I don't know. But if you have, like, Traverse in your deck, it is, it is pretty low cost to just have one of this in your deck, and just decimate people with this. Like, I don't know. I feel like this card is good. People are just like, yeah, this thing's weird. No, I'm just going to like skip on this. Like, kind of wondering what the pre-order price on this. Not not to like overhype this card. Like, I'm not trying to sell this card or anything. Like, if, if you guys don't believe me and you don't want to buy it, you know, it does not bother me at all. Uh, it's at 20. Seems reasonable to me. I, That's not bad. So something else we talked over lunch that I do want to make sure we briefly touch upon here. And obviously, you know, Jerry has a pretty good background in this since he works in R&D. It's like, this is Emrakul. This is, like, the mystery of the set. I mean, maybe it wasn't such a mystery, but it's, like, the big big part of the set. It's the marquee card. It's super cool. The art is awesome. Like, R&D wants this card to be pushed, and, like, when you can read the card and not fully understand exactly what's going on on the surface, you should probably understand that it's probably going to be good. Agree with that. I, I would say that this is the exact type of card that is intended to be played to some degree, right? I, I'm not sure if this is supposed to be like the marquee card of the set it, it goes in all decks because i feel like i don't know you just play magic for a little bit and then you get mind slavered like that kind of sucks like <laughs> i don't feel like too many people would like playing magic in that format if it was just like super easy to do but i do feel like this is an ugin type card where you know it's not a four of or whatever but it is just like this late game bomb that you you build your deck to get to the other thing that i want to touch on i guess is like if you play this card against like Bant Company Humans, for example, the Mind Slaver is probably not going to do a whole lot because, you know, they don't necessarily have a bunch of removal spells. They probably have, like, the board flooded with creatures and stuff. And I feel like this card, or at least the standard format, is encouraging you to play a bunch of creatures with 
pretty large like power and toughnesses alongside Emrakul just so that like you can get value out of the Mind Slaver turn by making them get into combat with you. Well, Emrakul is also just like a Shriek Maw. Like you just play it, it's going to eat something, which I haven't actually seen anybody talk about. Yeah, I mean, if, if you have this like with Sylvan Advocate and, and like a big tireless tracker or whatever, like then even though your opponent doesn't have like a lot of removal spells or ways to interact with their own creatures, at the very least, you get them to suicide their board, and then there, there are certainly times where you just, like, have your opponent attack with everything, tap them out, you attack them for lethal, you know? Well, they get I another guess, turn. I guess, yeah, I guess they get an extra turn. Never mind. Fixed. Well, like, another dimension this, like, opens up is, like, the whole, like, Mind Slaver turn makes you think about cards that... makes you think about how cards are worded that you've never thought of before. Like, Dromoka's Command, you can't fight your own creatures. And there's just, like, so many, like, open cases of... Like, Reflector Mage can only target their stuff. Like, there's going to be a lot of, like, new interactions going around when this card, like, sees play. So the fact that nobody under like, nobody quite understands this power level makes complete sense to me. Yeah, I mean, it, it is a weird card. I'm not saying that, like, you know, you're, you're stupid if you don't understand how good this card is. It is weird. Like, you're not supposed to look at this card and immediately build a deck with it. You know, like, that's that would just take away the fun in Magic, right? It's just, like, the brewing and, like, the testing and all that stuff. But at the same time, like, I, I look at where I see this card actually having potential, and I see that it has a lot of potential because it's a very powerful card, and I feel like a lot of people might be missing out on that. I also just like that this isn't a card with a bunch of text on it that's proxy for you win the game. Like, that's kind of how Immerkel the Aeon Torn was. Yeah, but it was it was uncastable basically by normal sure, means, right? But like it, it was and still just a, a fancy way of saying you win the game if you were able to achieve this card being on the battlefield. Right. And this one is a thing that you have to work for because I do think that there are going to be mind slaver turns that are just not that good. You know, you're you're just gonna like draw a card, suicide one of their creatures, and then just pass the turn back, and then they get like their actual turn and maybe the they even just kill you, you know? Yeah, you, you just have to look for ways to actually like build around this and where do you want it, and I, I think there are a lot of options for that. So I'm pretty excited to actually like start playing games with this card. I, I really want to give this card haste. <laughs> like, Surak Dragonclaw. Sure, I mean, that that's legit. But then you don't get to eat their creature. That's all I got. <laughs> uh, what about what about Shalmer Forgotten Ways? Ooh, that's card. I mean, it like, doesn't give it haste or whatever, but it's like a, another thing that helps out with the prohibitive mana cost, right? Ooh, man, our formidable deck, finally. Yes. Emrakul is, like, also just, like, the ultimate sure. trump, right? Like, if you're both, like, late in the game and, like, expended a bunch of resources and they're, like, Dragonlord Atarka and you're, like, all right, Emrakul, and then you just eat their Dragonlord Atarka and they have nothing, like, that's awesome. Yeah, you're, you're just, like, playing this draw go, like, building up removal or whatever, and, like, cast trigger Emrakul is just gas. Pro, pro instance is pretty nice, too, because, like, you get to go to their Mind Slaver turn before they can actually do anything to kill this. Yes. So, like, the worst case scenario is, like, you maybe get a card or two out of them, kill their best creature, and then they get their real turn, and then they, like, Ruinous Path through Emrakul, and you still have, like, three or four for one of them. Yeah, and, and they have to, like, probably draw Ruinous Path, otherwise they're they're most likely going to have a target, or you can force them to point it at, like, one of your crappy creatures, you know? So, yeah, like, I think Pro Instance is, like, a thing that I'm realizing is just more valuable on this card than I otherwise thought it was. Can get Stasis Snared, though. True. That is very true. Do you want to move on to the the next guy? Yeah. Ulrich uh, of the Kralin Horde. <laughs> at A+. Plus. Well done. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. Yeah. So, I like this card. It is Mythic, which is kind of similar to what Majors was talking about, where it's like... You know, it's it's really tough for, like, Mythics to just, like, straight miss, right? Because it's, like, 
A lot of them are just like built for constructed or they have like a specific purpose in mind, you know, like Days Undoing is like this fun card or whatever that might go in like a fringe deck, but it's just like, this is just a card that's like really powerful on rate and it's mythic. So it leads me to believe that we should just try this card. I definitely agree with you on that. I do have a, a kind of a problem with this card in general though, just because people have been wanting like a legendary werewolf for like multicolor werewolf for so long that I don't think it lives up to the like the casual hype aspect of it. I mean, I'm. it's a great constructed card. I mean, it looks powerful. Like the stats are really good. The effects are really good. But I think it's kind of just designed for the wrong person, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely agree with that too. This this does feel more like, uh, you know, a card that is supposed to hit in constructed. But, you know, like if you're trying to build like a red green werewolf commander deck or whatever, it's just like this, this thing like doesn't do anything for commander really, right? So yeah. it, is, it is kind of disappointing in that regard. But so... The way I look at it is is kind of like this souped up Huntmaster of the Fells. Uh, basically, whenever I played against Huntmaster of the Fells, I just like always killed the Huntmaster, and then it was like, okay, they got two life and a wolf, whatever. We'll we'll figure out some way to beat that, right? But like, it was very rare that like Huntmaster actually like ran rampant and just like destroyed me. But like, since this thing ha is so much bigger and has bigger stats, I can totally see this thing just like decimating like green mid range mirrors. And I actually like the front side just as a way to attack Planeswalkers. Like, I see this with Hangerback Walker just, like, making a Thopter or whatever, and then you can just, like, kill their Planeswalker on command. I mean, isn't this card literally designed to be, in every way, like, flavor-wise and playability, to be exactly like Wolf or Silverheart? Yeah, I don't Kinda. know about that. Well, like, my understanding is that when Avacyn dies, all of the Wolfier turn back into werewolves. And this is, like, Wolfier Silverheart. Oh. I guess that's an Uvenwald um, mystery. We'll categorize it under that. Yeah, man, I, I don't know about all that. That's what I heard. Just throwing that I, out there. I, I believe you. I believe you. But I mean, it's like yeah. similar. It's a 4-4. Four, four. It gives this uh, plus 4, plus 4 effect. So similar to Soul Bond. Immediate impact on the battlefield. And then like, you know, it's a werewolf that has this really powerful other effect. Yeah, I mean, Silverheart was 12 power. You know, it was 4-4 four, four and gave plus 4, plus 4 to two things just permanently. So yeah. I don't know. It, it is it is similar for sure. It looks similar. But going back to what I said earlier, um, again, we haven't seen the entire set. Maybe there might be another like legendary werewolf that's supposed to hit the more casual players. But I, I I want that to be the case. But this this guy definitely looks like he's geared for constructed, and I'm pretty sure he will see constructed play. Uh, yeah, but again, this is one of those things where it's like, oh, red green. Like, what does my red green deck look like? Like, I don't have a red green deck. You know, like, where, where am I going to want this thing? And it's like, who knows? You know, we'll figure it out once more cards in the set are released. Wouldn't I be surprised if people were playing Gem Protector on turn two to set this thing up? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's sweet, too. That's another good interaction instead of, like, Hangerback Walker. That's really cool. This guy just wants his friends to have Trample, just like Arlen Cord does. So, I don't know. Maybe there's some sort of Arlen Cord Ulrich combo. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I would assume so. Like, it, it is a pretty nice curve, right? It's four into five. I, I would have been shocked if there was, like, a red-green werewolf lord that was not either three or five mana. Uh, that's a good point. I, n I never really thought about it that way, yeah. You don't want them competing on the same slot. Right, yeah, you don't want them to sit on top of each other. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think this card is good, but, again, don't know where it's going to fit in. We're going to find that out at some point. Oh, man, there are 205 cards in this set. Man, I'm so smart. Just, just kind of nailed it. All right, one more card. Coax from the Blind Eternities. I, I think this is this is one of the ones where I would say I'm off it. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I, I don't know. I don't really see what I'm doing with this card that is, like, actually good. And if, if someone proves me wrong, cool. I really don't want to open this at the Pro Tour. It's an uncommon. 
it's just like the most Lovecraftian card of all time. You just like get them to rise from the deep or whatever. Yeah, I mean this this is definitely a card that I love that it exists. It, we're we're entering into spoiler season and it's like, all right, Emrakul, dope. I'm gonna build some some decks with this thing. Like, give me some more stuff to work with, right? And then they're like, uh, Eldrazi wish, and I'm like, uh, yeah, I'm I'm gonna pass on that one. I don't feel like this this is all that useful for me. But. What is uh? The Eldrazi protection spell. Not, not of, of this world. world. Yeah, and how, how is not of this world phrased? If you control a thing that ha- that costs seven or more, not of this world is free to cast, and it's a counter-target spell that targets a permanent you control, I think. Counter-target spell or ability that Ooh. targets a permanent you control. It costs seven less to cast if it targets a spell or ability that targets a creature you control with power seven or greater. Power seven or greater? Yeah. Damn, I was off. No, I, I had this in my Gristlebrand reanimator deck, you know, like counter Caracas activations and stuff. I don't know. I mean, maybe <laughs> somebody does this with like Death Shadow or something crazy. I don't know. That sounds pretty sweet to me. You can also get All Is Dust. Sure. It's, it's certainly possible, you know. Any sort of tutor should not necessarily be overlooked, right? But at the same time, I feel like I know who this card is intended to be for. And it's probably not. No, I mean, I, I don't think I, I'm going to see myself doing any brewing with this card. But it's, it's cool that there's a lot of possibilities. Well, it has it has been what is it Tuesday today, right? Yep. So it's been a day since Emrakul got spoiled. I think the uh, red green guy went up accidentally. I think I saw something about that where like I don't even know where it came from, but someone said it got posted to Twitter and then taken down. Yeah, and then I think they just went ahead and put it back up because you know the damage had been done. Sure. Okay. So Tuesday, no new spoilers. I don't know when more spoilers are going to happen. Hopefully by next week sometime. And I'm pretty excited. Stoked. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is the best part of Major. Yeah, for sure. Maybe we can add some segment to the show where Majors just, like, goes off the deep end and talks about various decks that he wants to brew and play I with. I mean, that's that's basically all I do for, like, three months out of the year, so I'm down. Oh, I know, man. Like, I, I, I kind of just want to let you talk for, like, five minutes every show or ten minutes. Yeah, we'll figure something out. It, it would uh, make your life easier because I send you deck lists all the time. You're just like, all right, man, cool. <laughs> no, see, dude, you have no idea how much I enjoy you sending me <laughs> Okay, man. You're, you're very expressive of that. I, I I hate, like, chatting online. It's so bad, especially on my phone. Yeah, that's fair. That's all. Well, I'm I, sorry, man. I, I, don't, I don't mean to, like, condition you to not send me deck lists, because please do that. I, I really like how none of your deck lists have any actual testing, too. That's, that's the best part about it. Dude, I test magic all the time. I'm thinking about it constantly. Yeah, I know, but you like, zero, like, actual games, though. This is another good show. Yeah, I, I think, yes. Let's, let's put this on the back burner as well. We'll, we'll talk about this one, too. You, you have sent me the text, this is probably busted a bunch of times <laughs> with no actual games. All right, we, we, we won't get too deep into this, but I, I've played thousands of hours of Magic. You know, I just, I've just i spent so much time playing this game and thinking about it, so I can kind of just shortcut to some extent, you know, what's good contextually in the metagame once it becomes established. That's all. Yup, and again, uh, a good show topic for the future. So... Uh, no Ulvenwald mysteries this weekend. Sorry, Andrew. Damn. <laughs> I, I got a, I got, I got a couple, but they weren't, they weren't great. I may have blown our load on the last one by doing three, but yeah. Tweet at the game podcast hashtag Ulvenwald mysteries. Send us, send us some things that are not very easily explained. Is basically the gist. Do you guys of it. think in a month it's just going to be Todd Stevens mysteries? <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe, because yeah, he's he's really good at those. But we do we do have the game, and I have a question for Andrew. Does anyone else have uh, a thing to contribute, or am I just riding the solo? I was last week, man. Okay, I went Andrew? last week too. 
Okay, well, then I screwed up and only did one. I don't know. I, I just assumed that uh, we should have two different people every week. But whatever. Uh, only do one because this, this podcast is going kind of long anyway. So, Michael, would Andrew rather be the most popular person or the smartest person but also unpopular? Okay, this, this is pretty good, I think. I, I think Andrew puts more of a value on relationships with people, but I don't necessarily mean... Like, excuse me, I don't, I don't necessarily think that means to be popular. I don't really think he cares about being popular, but I think he wants to cultivate positive relationships with people. I'm not sure if I get that, like, adjustment to this question. I don't really know how to phrase that. Yeah, I might need to def- better define what popular means exactly. Uh, I, I do think you have the gist. So, so I think when, when I hear the word though. popular, I think that's kind of a superficial thing. No, it is for sure. But uh, I don't know. For me, it, it just meant like, you know genuinely well-liked, like, people know who you are because of, like, some other quality or whatever, and they're just like, man, that Andrew guy, I really like that guy. Uh, obviously, if you're smart and unpopular, you can still cultivate good relationships with, like, close friends, right? Yes. And, yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I think that's where Andrew would want to be. Definitely want all of my relationships to be deep and meaningful. I don't want to have any, like, nothing friends or friendships that don't yield positive benefits for both sides. So, yeah. Yeah, just a bunch of acquaintances or whatever. Yeah, definitely not for superficial acquaintance-heavy stuff. I want to have a deep connection, Jerry. I I hear you. That's why we play the game. It it gets better every week, man. You guys are great. You're great too, man. Uh, what what about what about being popular? Like, do you is that like an important thing to you? Like, do you is that something you think about or care about? I don't want to be disliked. That's for sure. I I would rather be approachable than popular. If someone wants to have a friendship or relationship that could be positive for both of us. I'm in for that. If, if not, then I'm not in for it, I guess. That would be my answer. Okay, dope. That makes sense. And I think that answer also just makes you a good person, so. Oh, thanks, man. Well, I already thought you were a good person, so. Me <laughs> too. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. All right, any 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 last thoughts? No, I, I mean, I, I guess I really hadn't even thought about it until, you know, we did this show, but I'm really excited for spoiler season. I think that's going to be a lot of fun to talk about card evaluations and, you know, just getting into the new standard yeah man it is kind of gas i feel like we we realized like two or three different things you know the den protector thing with ulrich and the instance being good with emrakul because you just like go into immediate mind slave return and get to use their sorceries or whatever like those were things that i didn't think about until this this is this is what's great about it it's like you look at the card and not everything is immediately realizable you know you just got to figure it yeah. out. Play, play patterns in regards to cards is, is definitely a thing. I'm also getting a little tired of this standard, so more stuff is good. Well, that's how it works, right? Around the time it's not fresh anymore is when you get a new set. Pretty much. And I like the rotation every six months. I feel like that's a great idea. I, I have a confession. I don't actually know how it works off the top of my head. Eldritch Moon is going to come out, and then uh, we're going to have six set standard. Next set comes out, uh, Origins and DTK drop off. So it's basically just like standard is always five and six sets. Gotcha. No more, no okay. less. But uh, I also believe that there are more playable cards trying to get made for each set. So that it has a, a feel of like being like a six or seven set standard. But never, like I always felt like the, the five and eight set standards were the worst because five it was just like, you're not really happy with your deck or, you know, like all the cards you have to play with to like fill out your deck. And then eight set standards, just like Restoration Angel, Thrag Tusk, like, you know, it's just like no holds barred, basically like 
all, all the cards are just busted and, and no one's really having any yep. fun. So it, it's going to just settle into rotations of three small sets or three small blocks rather. Cool. Yeah, basically. Okay. Yeah. And then after DTK and origins rotate out is when it's going to be like normalized. Sounds good. All right. Dope. Uh, this one was pretty fun. I, I really enjoyed talking about spoilers and you two are good people to talk about spoilers with. So I, I'm going to have a lot of fun with this, I think. And yeah, like like Major said, this was not something that I even thought about when we thought about doing the podcast. So this is just like an added bonus. I'm so happy now. It makes spoiler season so much better because like all I want to do is talk about magic. Me too, man. Magic's great. Y'all are great. Majors and Andrew are great. Listeners are great. Magic's great. That's game. That's it, man. Game over, man. It's game over. <laughs>